Welcome to the Mapped Out Money Podcast, where we help you understand finance and manage your money so you can get on with living your adventure. You're listening to episode number 17. And today's episode is sponsored by the Mapped Out Money YouTube channel. So yes, we do have a YouTube channel. It's not just this podcast. If you Google uh, Mapped Out Money YouTube or put that into YouTube, it'll come right up. The videos over there are very similar topics to what we do here, although sometimes we do have uh, a lot more in-depth guided tutorials. So if you're looking for help with setting up your budget or looking for something that has a video component, be sure to check out that uh, Mapped Out Money on YouTube. Good evening, Hannah. Good evening, Nicholas. <laughs> I feel like our names aren't as cool as Jocko and Echo. I know, they're not. So if you've ever listened to um, the Jocko podcast, uh, which we're huge fans of, um, they start out every single episode with Jocko saying, good evening, Echo. Do they say Echo or Jocko first? I don't know. He says Echo. I'm pretty sure he says Echo first. Good okay. evening, Echo. That's what I was thinking too, but now and that I'm thinking about it, And I think he just it, says, sure. good evening. Probably. I'm sorry I messed it up. That's okay. Anyways, so this episode is going to be very similar to, um, well, in format to the episode that we did on I Miss You When I Blink. We like books. I think a lot of our um, listeners like books. Yeah, I think so. We're kind of planning to work these episodes in every so often when we have a book that really sticks out to us as being beneficial. So... Extreme Ownership by Jocko Willink and Leif Babin. Yeah, so that's that's today's book. Um, if you haven't heard of them or know of them, they're retired Navy SEALs, um, and they run a leadership company called Echelon Front, uh, where they work with like massive, massive companies. Everything they have has such a cool name. It does, Echelon Front. I know. So hardcore. <laughs> I know. So they teach, they teach a lot of leadership principles, um, and you might be going, okay, well, why are we listening to that? like on a po- personal finance podcast. Um, but ev- everything like in this book, seriously, super applicable to your finances uh, and, and your life in general. And so we're going to kind of take some of my favorite pieces from this book and, and apply it uh, to personal finance. So you've told me before about how this book has a unique structure. You want to start out by kind of laying that out yeah. for everybody? Yeah, yeah. So the way the, the book works is every single chapter is about a specific principle that they want to teach. But each chapter opens with a war story from when they were in Iraq and basically how that leadership principle either did or uh, did work or, or should have been implemented in a certain situation. Then in the middle of the chapter, they lay out the leadership principle specifically. And then the last part of each chapter, they basically go through an, a business example or business story um, that they've had while working with Echelon Front uh, that shows that same principle. So it's really cool because unlike most uh, self-improvement type books, the whole book is basically just storytelling. And mm-hmm. it's it's really, really intriguing. And um, I, I flew through it for that reason. I think that's such a creative idea, too. And I also feel like it would make the principles a lot more memorable. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And that's that's kind of what they say, too, is we're such like an extreme thing that it ends up making these principles stick out a lot more and you can see it so clearly uh, in all of their stories and then you can take that and apply it. Makes it much easier to apply yes. in less extreme scenarios. That's right. Yeah. That's right. So today we're going to share our uh, our favorite takeaways. We've got five of them for you. The book is 12 chapters long, so there are seven other leadership principles we won't be talking about today. Um, our yeah. favorite takeaways. I haven't read the book, but I feel confident that your favorites would be my favorites too. I feel pretty confident. <laughs> So with that being said, what's our first takeaway? 
chapter number one, which is also the title of the book, uh, which is Extreme Ownership. And this is the heaviest of all the takeaways. It is the, the heaviest. Won't be as heavy. It is the heaviest. It's got the most kind of intensity around it, but for a good reason. Before I read a portion of this book, a portion of the first chapter to kind of set this up, um, Jocko tells a story about a friendly fire situation. And basically, you know, in the Iraq war, they're fighting. And this story takes place in uh, Ramadi, which is like this heavy urban city environment. And we were actually just talking about like even walking around um, like certain cities when we're just like a tourist, it's so easy to get turned around. Yeah, like the grid system, although yep. it's like laid out very clearly, it's really easy to get turned around so quickly in that grid and go yeah. like, oh, wh- where was that restaurant that we liked? Or where was that thing that we liked? And so if you imagine how easy it is to do that, now imagine like a war-torn city with no street signs or anything like that. And you have all these buildings that are numbered on a map, like, oh, building number 67 or building number 75. Well, what happens in this scenario is that a couple of uh, American units get mixed up and they essentially end up firing uh, at each other, thinking that they're each firing at terrorists. And it's a really terrible situation. Luckily, uh, no one dies. Uh, One guy did get some fragmentation from a grenade, like in the face, um, but, but no one died. But it was a really, obviously, very scary thing. And when this happened and Jocko found out about it, he knew immediately this was going to be a big problem, obviously. He gets, like, an email from his commanding officer that says, hey, look, you need to shut everything down. Like, me, my boss, and an investigating officer, we're all coming. We're all flying in, and we're going to sort this situation out. So that's kind of where I'm going to pick up. Let me find it. So he says... In the meantime, they directed me to prepare a brief detailing what had happened. I knew what this meant. They were looking for someone to blame, and most likely, someone to relieve. The military euphemism for someone to fire. All right, then I'm going to skip ahead to where the commanding officer and the master chief and the investigating officer all show up. A few minutes later, I walked into the platoon space where everyone was gathered to debrief. The silence was deafening. The commanding officer sat in the front row. The CMC stood ominously in the back. The SEAL that had been wounded, fragged in the face by the fifty caliber round, was there, his face pretty banged up. I stood before the group. Whose fault was this? I asked to the room full of teammates. After a few moments of silence, the SEAL, who had mistakenly engaged the Iraqi soldier, spoke up. It was my fault. I should have positively identified my target. Side note here. What happened is that the Iraqi soldier, this one in particular, was not uh, part of the terrorist organization. He was actually part of the group of Iraqis that were fighting with Americans against the terrorist organization. Okay, back to the book. No, I responded, it wasn't your fault. Whose fault was it? I asked the group again. It was my fault, said the radio man from the sniper element. I should have passed our position sooner. Wrong, I responded, it wasn't your fault. Whose fault was it? I asked again. It was my fault, said another SEAL, who was a combat advisor with the Iraqi Army Clearance Team. I should have controlled the Iraqis and made sure they stayed in their sector. Negative, I said. You are not to blame. More of my SEALs were ready to explain what they had done wrong and how it had contributed to the failure, but I had heard enough. You know whose fault this is? You know who gets all the blame for this? The entire group sat there in silence, including the CO and the CMC and the investigating officer. No doubt they were wondering whom I would hold responsible. Finally, I took a deep breath and I said, there's only one person to blame for this, me. I'm the commander. 
I am responsible for the entire operation. As the senior man, I am responsible for every action that takes place on the battlefield. There is no one to blame but me. But this I will tell you right now. I will make sure that nothing like this ever happens again. It was a heavy burden to bear, but it was absolutely true. I was the leader. I was in charge and I was responsible. Thus, I had to take ownership of everything that went wrong. Despite the tremendous blow to my reputation and to my ego, it was the right thing to do. The only thing to do. I apologized to the wounded seal, explaining that it was my fault he was wounded and that we were all lucky he wasn't dead. We then proceeded to go through the entire operation piece by piece, identifying everything that happened and what we could do going forward to prevent it from happening again. Looking back, it is clear that despite what happened, the full ownership I took of the situation actually increased the trust from my commanding officer and the master chief that they had in me. If I had tried to pass the blame on to others, I suspect I would have been fired, deservedly so. Obviously, that's a very extreme example of extreme ownership. And I've heard Jocko talk about that. I've heard him talk about it several different times in different YouTube videos and um, on different podcast episodes. And one of my favorite ways that he talks about that is talking about it within marriage. And the example he always gives is like, you know, say you're married, you have kids, you're trying to like get up, get off to work, get the kids off to school and everything. And in the scenario that he gave, and I think when he was talking about this, he was talking about something that had actually happened with him and his wife, but it could have, it might've just been a general example. I can't remember, but he's like, okay, so like I have to get off and like go to an office. My wife stays at home with the kids and like gets them off to school and whatever. But the past few mornings, it had been like we were we were waking up late. Everybody was like frustrated with each other and kind of getting into Out of it. Routine. Yes. And um, so it was just leading to like arguments and just kind of everything being crazy. He said, so in that scenario, I could go to my wife and be like, hey, you need to be waking up earlier. It's your job to be like fixing the kids lunch and all this stuff and getting them off to the school bus on time. And like, I've got to get off and go to work, you know, you're sleeping in. And so then I'm like having to try to make the kids lunches and like help you do that to get them off on time. And then it's making me late. And, you know, like this whole scenario of getting really mad at each other Yep. where he was like, if I take extreme ownership and say, hey, you know what? I've been sleeping in and I know it's throwing everything off and I know that it's making everybody's day get off to a really rough start. And I'm I'm going to try to do better and get up earlier so that I can help you with the kids lunches and, and just make the morning go smoother. The reason that makes me think that this was a true example is because he talked about how his wife was like, no, 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 I've just been off my game a little bit the past few days. I want to get up earlier. I need to be getting up earlier and like getting that ball rolling sooner. So it, it dissipated without an argument. Yeah, without pointing fingers. Yeah. And he said that he's told that story and has had people say, well, yeah, but what if I say that? And my wife's like, okay, yeah, get up, get up earlier and make the sandwiches and get the kids onto the school bus. And he's like, well, then you get up earlier and, and you, you make, make the, the sandwiches. sandwiches and you get the kids on the school bus. It is. It's it's not. Um, it's not a fakey extreme It's not example. lip service. No, no. Yeah. Yeah. It's actually being willing to step up to the plate and do it, even if even if whoever you feel like they're not carrying the weight that they should be carrying or whatever. It's taking your focus off of that and focusing on what you can do to improve the situation. Yeah. No, I, I love that. And I think that's really important because we can play this game of like, oh, I'm going to take ownership. And then like they'll they'll recognize it's actually yeah. them. If I say this, then they'll say that. But yeah, that you have to be prepared. If they don't say that, you better actually mean what you're saying yeah because otherwise that situation is gonna get real ugly real fast yeah 
<laughs> yeah. So uh, let me let me read through this definition, and then we'll then we'll talk about it with personal finance too. Um, so their definition in the book, um, the core concept of extreme ownership is. On any team, in any organization, all responsibility for success and failures rests with the leader. The leader must own everything in his or her world. There is no one else to blame. The leader must acknowledge mistakes and admit failures, take ownership of them, and develop a plan to win. Well, in personal finance, you're, and this sounds kind of weird to say it this way, but like you're the leader of your own life. That's you. It's it's your life, and you have to lead it. And so the best way to get ahead with your money is to have an attitude that you're the one. If you want to change something, you have to do it. You have to own your situation and do everything within your power to try and change it. Like, I think when you hear this, like, you could take it very negatively. Like, oh, that like means... Like an insensitive yeah. kind of view? Well, like, that means everything that's going on in my life that's bad is my fault, which isn't true, right? Like, I think... Um, I think you can focus on the negative side. I didn't take, I don't take it that way and I don't want anybody else to take it that way. Instead, I take it as a very like empowered position of like, that means I actually do have some agency over my life. Well, it's very similar to the fixed versus growth mindset. Totally. In that yes, way. it is. Because it it's saying you're not in a situation that you don't have any control over. And instead, in fact, if you want to do something, it's a very empowering point of view, in my opinion. And I think you, I think a lot of people can get caught up in... I guess arguing that point of like, well, are you saying everything's my fault? Does that mean, you know, whatever? And it's like that, that's really not the part that even matters. That's not the part that we're even talking about. It comes, it boils down to an idea that we've talked about before, which is um, it's just not beneficial. That's right. To live your life in a victim mindset where you think all of these things have happened to you and you have no control to improve the situation. Yeah. Whether or not it's true, it's in your benefit to believe that, yeah, okay, maybe this thing over here sucks, but it's it's in my control to make this decision and that choice and and you know all of these other things that I can control in my life to try to make my situation the best that it can be. You're totally right because it's not saying that you haven't been uh, dealt a really bad hand. It's not saying that life is fair and that you know because it's not. It, it is just saying it comes down to the other Jocko principle of good. Yeah, good. <laughs> right. That idea of like, oh, you're like life has dealt you a really crappy hand. Good gives you an opportunity to overcome something. Yeah, that's you're going to come you stronger. out stronger right. than everybody else around you. Yeah. yeah. No, it totally does. And it it reminds me of, let me pick up this other book. So it reminds me of um, another book that we've talked about called The Obstacle is the Way uh, by Ryan Holiday. And I'm going to read um, I'm gonna read a section about um, what he calls the, what what's called the serenity prayer. But uh, it's basically just about focusing on what you can and can't control. And, you know, I think pairing that concept with this idea of extreme ownership over those things puts you in a really powerful position. So he opens with the serenity prayer uh, that recovering addicts learn. It is, God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. He goes on to say, this is how they focus their efforts. It's a lot easier to fight addiction when you aren't also fighting the fact that you were born, that your parents were monsters, or that you lost everything. That stuff is done. Delivered. Zero in 100 chances that you can change it. So what if you focused on what you can change? That's where you can make a difference. Behind the serenity prayer is a 2,000-year-old stoic phrase, which I'm not going to be able to pronounce, uh, which basically says, what is up to us and what is not up to us. And what is up to us? Well, our emotions, our judgments, our creativity, 
our attitude, our perspective, our desires, our decisions, our determination. This is our playing field, so to speak. Everything there is fair game. What is not up to us? Well, everything else. The weather, the economy, circumstances, other people's emotions or judgments, disasters, trends, etc. To argue, to complain, or worse, to just give up, these are choices. Choices that more often than not do nothing to get you across the finish line. So what was what was something that you couldn't pronounce? It's like a ta et fium ta oak. Oh, okay. Fium. Nailed it. Thanks. <laughs> I cleared it up for me. What is up to us? What is not up to us? Okay. Gotcha. It's a Greek, maybe? I don't know. I got no clue. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like a Greek. Yeah, okay. Sure, sounds right. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to play Nick's role here uh, and tie a bow on... Tie a bow on this. I'm going to tie a bow on this first little takeaway um, and close it out with a quote from, I think, one of one of our most favorite people in general, Michael J. Fox. And he has this great quote uh, that I'll just read. He says, I have no choice about whether or not I have Parkinson's. I have nothing but choices about how to react to it. In those choices, there's freedom to do a lot of things in areas that I wouldn't have otherwise found myself in. Perfect. I think that sums it up. I know. There's really, how do you follow that up? How do you follow that up? I know. With takeaway number two. All right. Takeaway number two is simple. Uh, We've all heard probably the idea of, you know, kiss, right? Keep it simple, stupid. But it was really interesting, I thought, to read about this from like a war perspective. So I'm going to read another kind of small section. This will be much smaller about the, uh, the principle of simple. Combat, like anything in life, has inherent layers of complexities. Simplifying as much as possible is crucial to success. When plans and orders are too complicated, people may not understand them. And when things go wrong and they inevitably do go wrong, complexity compounds the issues and they can spiral out of control into total disaster. Plans and orders must be communicated in a manner that is simple, clear, and concise. Everyone that is part of the mission must know and understand his or her role in the mission and what to do in the event of likely contingencies. So he obviously has a couple of stories about, you know, what goes wrong when you have a really complicated plan. And uh, like everything else in the book, uh, in war, that's only heightened and, 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 you know, really uh, exacerbated compared with everyday life. I feel like one of the ways that we've seen this play out in our own situation, it's not directly personal finance, but it's indirectly personal finance for us because it's our life planning kind of stuff. Mm, yeah. And Nick and I are both like the nerds who love school supplies and just like planning yep. and the process Journaling. of planning and like just diving all into that. And so I feel like we can come up with these really complicated processes of going through planning and then also really complicated plans yeah. for our life. Complicated and, habit trackers, habit oh, yeah. budget things. Oh, yeah. yeah. Complicated workout plans. We yes. can, oh, you give us something and we can overcomplicate yes, it. So we've learned that lesson over and over again of, okay, when we dive in with this super intense, overcomplicated way of tracking everything that we're doing, it doesn't work. We don't follow it. Um, and so especially, I would say, over the past, I would say especially two years, yeah. we've really worked on simplifying down and um Even probably the latest thing is like our health and fitness stuff and just really going, hey, you know what? We're just going to really focus on five workouts a week. And we did that for like a year before we even started thinking anything about nutrition or anything else health related. We just nailed down on 
workouts. workouts. We're going to do the 12 minute workouts from the 12 minute athlete. And that's what it's going to be five days a week, period. Boom. And we've had much better results doing that than when we tried to do crazy, complicated things. Yeah, well, and the same thing happens in finance. I mean, I think um, so many of the people that either we've seen in the YouTube comment section or even that we've worked in in our classes, um, they'll come in and, and they'll have these super overly complicated budgets, right, to track every single little thing. They'll have 80 categories and they'll break out all this stuff. And, and you know, if they if they tracked that, then yeah, they would generate some really beautiful reports of their spending, you know, but in reality, the vast majority of people, you're just not going to stick with a system like that. Yeah. And, and you have to get really realistic with yourself of what of this is actually helpful to reflect back on. That's right. Yeah. Are all these reports going to actually help me achieve anything or work more efficiently or, you know, do I actually need all this information? That's right. That's right. And and the reality is most of the time you don't. You need a couple of small things. And so I, I think, you know, the first thing as far as financial related, like it would be if you're budgeting, if you're tracking your finances or even like as applied to investing or, you know, your insurance plan or paying down debt, having a really simple plan that you understand, that you know you can stick with from or, or at least that it's not so complicated that that gets in the way of you sticking with it, right? You might not stick with it for other reasons, other struggles, but don't let an overly complicated plan be the reason that you don't stick with it. Well, even with us, uh, when we started using YNAB, you know, these days, if we go to the grocery store and we buy paper towels and makeup and whatever mixed in with groceries— Right after I check out, I'm going to stand there and split that stuff out and go, okay, well, this much was household items, this much was cosmetics, and this much was groceries. Yep. But we didn't do that for years. Yeah. No. And that will blow people's minds. They're like, oh my gosh, are you serious? You take the time to stand there and do that? And to us now, it feels like not a big deal at all. We're so used to that. That's so ingrained. Like, why now is so ingrained? Our budget is so ingrained. It's not a big deal to do that, but we did not start out there. No, no. And and most people, if you're trying to do that, you know, it's like tracking Amazon spending. I mean, I tell everybody that I work with, like, listen, when you're starting out, create an, create an Amazon category. Yeah. And just anything that you buy on Amazon, put it there. Yeah. Because if you try to figure out what, what Amazon thing goes to what, you're going to drive yourself crazy and you're just going to stop budgeting altogether. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So don't, don't let that type of thing be what throws you off track. Totally. The uh, the second thing that, you know, I kind of thought about with finance was having a really simple system gives you something to fall back on again when times get stressful, right? Because, um, you know, I don't have this crazy complicated investing plan where I'm trying to do a million different things and buy all these stocks and look at all this stuff. I don't have a crazy complicated budget. You know, I just have a very simple system so that when life throws you a bunch of curveballs, you can sort of put that simple system on autopilot go back to default and focus on the other things. And I think everybody can relate to the importance of that now, like with everything, oh, all the uncertainty with COVID and everything, um, having a having a really solid system that doesn't make your brain want to explode. It's, it's nice to have that peace of mind to fall back on. Totally, totally. So uh, I think to wrap up this section, um, we can end it with, um, talking about Gall's Law. So this is something I actually found from David Peril, the person we talked about in Stuff We Like last week. Oh, look at you. Look at me tying it all in. So John Gall, uh, he has this law where he says, a complex system that works is invariably found to have evolved from a simple system that worked. 
a complex system designed from scratch never works and cannot be patched up to make it work. You have to start over with a working, simple system. Keep your finances simple. I need to like write that and keep it posted <laughs> everywhere that I do anything. All right. Number three is prioritize and execute. So um, another part of this book it was written by Jocko and Leif. So far, I've only read chapters that Jocko did, um, but this one is actually one from Leif. What a cool name. I know, right? Leif. Leif. Leif Babin. That's what it sounds like. <laughs> that's how. It, that's literally how he sounds. <laughs> uh, you have to have an intense voice if you're going to have a, a name like Leif. So here Leif says. <laughs> oh, no, please. <laughs> no, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> okay, so here's the context for this story. So uh, Leif has got a platoon, and he's out. Uh, they're out kind of paroling. They've got a mission. They're trying to take over a certain area. And basically, they, uh, they've they done what they needed to do, but now they have to, or they provided cover, I think, for another mission. And they, now they've got to make it back to base, okay, which is a pretty long way. But they've been holed up in this building all day. And, and you should know, too, these buildings, all these houses are like concrete. And they've been holed up in this house all day long. They're on the second story, and they're about to leave. And they realize that while they've been there, some uh, Iraqi insurgents have actually placed a bomb right at the side of their door. What they think is a bomb. There's a trash heap that wasn't there before that... It looks like there's a, a hidden bomb there. So they can't go out the front door. They also can't jump out of any of the second story windows because it's too far of a jump. So what they decide to do is bust through the wall. And so they, they evidently they always travel with a sledgehammer. That's something you do evidently. And so <laughs> the guys take turns literally busting out a hole through the wall that will allow them to step out onto the roof of the house right beside them. Then they're going to go out through that home. Before you start reading, did we give the title? I got so distracted by oh, Lake's name. Did we give like the... Yes. Uh, the title is Prioritize and Execute. Okay. So um, so this is going to pick up basically right after they've broken through the wall. Swiftly, we pushed through the jagged <laughs> hole. Swiftly. It came out swiftly. Oh. <laughs> Swift, swiftly. <laughs> yeah, Leif would not say swiftly. And he, that's what he wrote. <laughs> not swiftly. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> swiftly, we pushed through the jagged hole in the concrete and onto the flat, dusty rooftop of the adjacent building. Seal shooters fanned out, scanning for threats. Weapons trained on the darkened windows and rooftops of the higher buildings around us. Tactfully, this was a terribly bad position. A wide-open rooftop with no cover, surrounded by higher buildings all around, deep in the enemy's backyard, after having taken heavy fire all day long. We need a head count. Make sure we've got everybody, I said to the LPO. The LPO had already positioned himself for this and was making it happen. Suddenly, a seal, moving along the edge of the rooftop just steps ahead of me, crashed through the roof and fell 20 feet to the ground, landing hard with a loud smack on the concrete. This was crazy. What had appeared in the darkness to be the edge of the rooftop was actually only a plastic tarp covered with dust. In an instant, things had spiraled into mayhem. The seal lay on the ground, groaning in pain. We called down to him, and we tried to contact him via his radio. Hey, are you all right? I asked him. There was no response. The seals up ahead immediately tried to find a way down to him, but the door to the only stairway leading down the roof from the rooftop was blocked by a gate of heavy iron bars chained and locked. This was bad. 
dreadfully exposed on a wide open rooftop with no cover, we were completely surrounded by higher, tactfully superior positions in the heart of an extremely dangerous enemy controlled area. Large numbers of enemy fighters had total freedom of movement here, had attacked us throughout the day and knew our location. Even worse, the clock was ticking on an explosive charge that would set off a huge IED blast, throwing the deadly metal fragments in all directions. Our SEAL element did not yet have a full head count to ensure all our personnel were out of the building, and now one of our SEALs lay helplessly alone and unable to defend himself on the most dangerous street in the nastiest enemy-held area of Ramadi, and we couldn't get to him. His neck or back might be broken, his skull could be fractured, we had to get a SEAL down there to him immediately, but we couldn't even reach him without breaking through this locked iron gate to get to the street below. The massive pressure of the situation bore down on me. This was a terrible dilemma, one that could overwhelm even the most competent leader. How could we possibly tackle so many problems at once? Prioritize and execute. Even the greatest of battlefield leaders could not handle an array of challenges simultaneously without being overwhelmed, that risk failing at all of them. I had to remain calm, step back from my immediate emotional reaction, and determine the greatest priority for the team. Then, rapidly direct the team to attack that priority. Once the wheels were in motion and the full resources of the team were engaged in that highest priority effort, I could then determine the next priority, focus the team's effort there, and move on to the next priority. I could not allow myself to be overwhelmed. I had to relax, look around, and make a call. That was what Prioritize and Execute was all about. He then goes on to kind of talk through the priorities of that story, how they get out, what he identified as top priorities, and sort of how they moved through them. And and luckily, they ended up all making it out alive and fine. Um, but again, like, I was reading through that like, man, it's real it scary. me out just listening <laughs> to you read it. I it's know. real scary. Okay, so let me read this principle, and then we'll, we'll talk about it. So the principle is, obviously, prioritize and execute, and they say, on the battlefield, countless problems compound into a snowball effect. Every challenge complex in its own right, each demanding attention. But a leader must remain calm and make the best decision possible. To do this, SEAL combat leaders utilize, prioritize, and execute. We verbalize this principle with this direction. Relax, look around, make a call. So again, I think, you know, I immediately think of the coronavirus, right? And COVID and like, we have 50 million Americans, I think at this point, that have filed for unemployment which is like a third of the workforce. I was reading something the other day that one in three people that were working have now, you know, gotten unemployment. Yeah. So it's like super scary, uh, you know, for a lot of a lot of folks right now. And I think you and I have certainly found ourselves um, in, in stressful situations, nothing at all like this, you know, uh, Iraqi war situation, but where I certainly feel overwhelmed. And this was really helpful for me especially because as we've talked about on the podcast before, when when we have financial struggles, um, I can get very overwhelmed very easily and I can really let that affect my emotions. And remembering those words of relax, look around, make a call, and just trying to focus on like, what's the highest priority and let me attack that first. It's been really helpful framework for me. In physical therapy land, this would come out like you might have a patient who came in and say their knee was really bothering them, like just killing them, like seven out of 10 pain. But in reality, they they did have knee issues, but they were like stemming from like hip and back issues. And patients would sometimes get mad, like 
well, why are you why are you doing all this stuff with my hip and back? My knee is what's killing me. And it's like, okay, but if I prioritize your knee first and I do all this stuff to your knee, it's not going to do anything because you've still got your hip and your back causing all these issues that are making your knee hurt. So even though it feels like your knee needs to be the top priority right now, like it can't be the top priority. It's not going to get any better making it the top priority. Like you have to like step back and figure out what the root of the problem is and prioritize that first. That's really cool. And that's, I don't think I've heard you talk about that before, but that's interesting too, because it, it makes sense because you're able to do the stepping back. Right. You're not the one in pain in that. Yeah. So it's like, it's really. But you, when you're in it and you're, you're in, in pain, yeah. It's really hard to recognize, like, hey, actually, uh, maybe it's not my knee. Maybe it's, you know, maybe the maybe real problem some, is something else over yeah, here. Yeah. These other things are contributing to my knee. And yeah. It is. It's really hard. And, and, you know, Jocko on his podcast calls this detaching. And it's, it's really difficult to do when you're in the moment of a really stressful situation, especially like a stressful financial situation, it's really hard and I think to detach. before you get into the situation, I think we assume that it will be obvious, like what you need to focus on. But it's not always, you know, no. it, it is like the, the knee hip back situation, like what what you think is is the main thing that needs your focus may not actually be like you do have to detach to actually figure out where does my attention need to be right now yeah yeah so i you know when i think about it from like a especially like a covid scenario where you know if if you're drowning in debt as it is and you're really struggling to get out of debt then you've probably got other problems too, right? You've probably got like maybe your investments aren't up to what they should be. Maybe you don't have adequate insurance in certain areas. But if you're struggling and like knee deep up to your, up, you know, up to your neck in debt, and then you lose your job. Knee deep up, knee to, deep your up to your neck. Knee deep up to your neck. Like that. Like that. Uh, I was going to try and forget you. I said that. Uh, <laughs> but, if you know, if, if you're like drowning in debt and, and then you just lost your job, right, because of COVID or whatever, it's really hard to detach, relax, prioritize and execute. But again, from a practicality standpoint, we've got to figure out a way to do that. And I think it does at least start with knowing that framework so that you can practice in that situation and try to remember. So, you know, this framework has been, like I said, really, really helpful for me when I've found myself overwhelmed. I think another another example of where we've seen this framework is people can get really, and this kind of ties back into the last thing too, people can get really caught up in these complex plans to pay off debt. And sometimes they can do that while neglecting the first step of preventing themselves from going into more debt. Totally. I know we've sent a lot of emails just, you know, kind of reiterating like, you know, anytime you're trying to get out of debt, that first step is always to make sure that you don't have to go into more debt. So even though it can feel counterintuitive and you want to throw all your money at this debt, you have to build up an emergency fund first. Yes. No, you have to because it – I mean the worst thing in the world is to try and crush your debt and then something really bad happened and you have no emergency fund and then now you're just – you're back into more debt. But again, people don't always go there because, yeah. you know, like that debt, that's the thing hurting. That's the thing causing you all the pain and that's where you want to throw all your attention and you have to detach and look at it from the bigger picture to be able to go, you know what? Although it does delay me paying this debt off, I need this emergency fund first. That's right. Yeah. So I, again, I just, I love this book. I think you all should get this book and read it um, and kind of, you know, pay attention to how Leif thinks through, you know, 
because the first move, he doesn't go after the guy who mm -hmm. fell, right? They have a couple other things they have to take care of first before they can go do that, even though that's a really big problem. That'd be really hard. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, so number four, let's let's go on. Um, number four is decisiveness amid uncertainty. So this is um, it's very similar to the last one, but a little bit different. Leaders cannot be paralyzed by fear. That results in inaction. It is critical for leaders to act decisively amid uncertainty, to make the best decisions they can based on only the immediate information available. There is no 100% right solution. The picture is never complete. Leaders must be comfortable with this and be able to make decisions promptly, and then be ready to adjust those decisions quickly based on evolving situations and new information. Intelligence gathering and research are important, but they must be employed with realistic expectations and must not impede the swift decision-making that is so often the difference between victory and defeat. Waiting for the 100% right and certain solution leads to delay, indecision, and an inability to execute. Leaders must be prepared to make an educated guess based on previous experience, knowledge of how the enemy operates, likely outcomes, and whatever intelligence is available in the immediate moment. This is one that I really struggle with, uh, which is, again, why I you know, pointed it out as such a big takeaway for me. This makes me think of a lot of other principles, too. Like one that ties into that is not being afraid to change your mind yep. and being willing to go with the decision that you feel like you need to make at the moment, but recognizing that things change and that that might also mean that you change your mind. And along with that is getting past the fear of failure. Yeah. And and saying like, you know what, failure's part of it. And, you know, uh, is it Gary Vee who says fail faster? Yes. Yep. Like, okay, the faster I'm failing, the faster I can figure it out and the faster I can figure out what's going to work. Um, and kind of having that mindset. And I think a lot of times we get so caught up in, again, we it always comes back to what other people think. I think, I think that's, I know that's a huge struggle for me. I think it's a big struggle for a lot of people. And we can get so caught up in worrying what other people are going to think about um, if we fail or, you know, whatever. If we do change directions, like, it's hard. It's, it's hard really to do. Hard. Yeah. Yeah. No, and I, I like what you said there, too, about recognizing the, that you need to change sometimes and recognizing you, you made, you, you use, like, uh, based on new information or something like that is what you said. But that, that idea of, like, look, we made a decision. Uh, but that was based on information we had at the time. And then now we have new information. Mm -hmm. Something changed. Our friend uh, Nathan Bowler, who also has a YouTube channel, yes. if you're interested in checking that out, um, he was talking about, he was like, yeah, you know, sometimes the game changes. Yep. Sometimes you're you're playing one game and then all of a sudden the game changes and changes what you need to do. Yep. Um, so, yeah. It's just like Settlers of Catan. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Sometimes you, think, you have to change your you strategy. You think you're going to buy a road and a settlement. And then you get a whole bunch of wheat cards and rock cards, and all of a sudden you need to buy a city. There you go. And I don't make that change, which is why I never win settlers. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but but back to the principle, like I'm I'm really bad about researching and researching and over researching and then researching some more. When Nick and I first got married, we needed a TV. And oh my gosh. Needed. That's a strong word. Okay. We wanted to buy a TV. <laughs> so um, we were looking at TVs. I found a couple at like Sam's or Costco or something. It was like, hey, which one of these TVs looks good to you? 
And he's like, um, let me look into it and get back to you. So like two weeks later, I'm like, okay, where are we at with this TV TV. situation? And he's like, oh, well, I've done this research on this one and that on this one. And I've talked to so-and-so and so-and-so who have this TV and gotten their experience with it. And I'm waiting to talk to so-and-so and so-and-so about this other TV. I was like, oh my gosh, I'm <laughs> buying a TV. Like, you're just going to have to let this go and just roll with whatever I buy. <laughs> so. uh, and it's like, it it's good, you know, in certain situations of research, you know, but like that, I could have spent five minutes probably in Sam's on a phone, you know, and like then made a gut decision. Yeah, not every decision in life needs that level of that level of yeah intensity. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, this this has been really helpful for me because I I can definitely tend to over research something That's at okay. some point. But but you've actually helped me with that a ton. Like you are much more comfortable, I think, trusting your gut. You know, like in situations, you'll go like. I don't know. I just feel this way. I like that you make that a positive. I'm not sure that everybody would make that a positive, but I appreciate that you are. Well, what do you mean? Yeah, you just follow your gut, like non-researched. Well, no. no, no, not that you don't research. You do research certain things, mm, but like sometimes. you're more comfortable. You're more comfortable following your gut, right? Yeah. Like, and you, I don't pick out animals for that reason. Oh, that that is true. See, that's a good example. That is true. You're like the animal whisperer. And so whenever we get a new animal... If we're going to the shelter, we're going wherever we're going, you're, I'm, I may as well stay in the car because you, you like, you just got, you got to touch. I'm going to, I'll go, I'll take it. But I mean, you'll never really know because you don't know about the other ones that I didn't pick. That's true. But I will say all four of our animals well, pretty are. Pretty awesome. Pretty awesome. Top notch. So yeah. So that one, decisions, decisiveness amid uncertainty. At some point, you got to go, go with it. All right. That brings us to number five, the discipline equals freedom which if you know anything about Jocko, there's a big phrase. He's got t-shirts with this. He's got books called this. He's got a, another book called The Dichotomy of Leadership that talks about these two things, discipline and freedom, and how they're seemingly opposites, but how they actually go hand in hand. And so I'm going to read another small section. The context here is uh, that Jocko noticed a couple different times throughout SEAL training that the only way that he was going to be able to have time for himself or time to study, or extra time to prepare, is if he woke up earlier. He also noticed, like, the best SEALs, the ones who were always coming in first and everything, were the ones who were most disciplined. And I really like this uh, principle because it's it's honestly a lot like budgeting that we talk about all the time. People think that budgeting is this restrictive thing that actually puts handcuffs on them, um, when in reality, budgeting actually gives you freedom, and that's the same thing uh, with discipline. So let me read here and then we can talk about it. But there was and is a dichotomy in the strict discipline we followed. Instead of making us more rigid and unable to improvise, this discipline actually made us more flexible, more adaptive, and more efficient. It allowed us to be creative. When we wanted to change plans midstream on an operation, we didn't have to recreate an entire plan. We had the freedom to work within the framework of our disciplined procedures. All we had to do was link them together and explain whatever small portion of the plan had changed. When we wanted to mix and match fire teams, squads, and even platoons, we could do so with ease, since each element operated with the same fundamental procedures. Last, and perhaps most important, when things went wrong, and in the fog of war set in, we fell back on our disciplined procedures to carry us through the toughest challenges on the battlefield. You know, Jocko basically talked about how um, he and his team made these 
like ridiculously extensive standard operating procedures. And, you know, everything from the way that they did roll call to the way that they unloaded and outloaded a truck or a vehicle down to every little bitty thing. And you just talked about how when they had all that, like, perfect in sync, it allowed them to then make changes and it gave them a lot of freedom on the battlefield, which I thought was really cool. I think a, a really simplified, a couple of really simplified versions of how we see this in our own life in particular, like one with working out is, um, you know, when we're really disciplined about working out and taking our fitness seriously, we have the freedom to take advantage of random things that come up, whether it's a road race or um, a really cool hike that friends want to do or something that we find in the area that's kind of a more taxing, um, like physically grueling kind of thing. Like we've been disciplined. And so we can, on a whim, decide that we want to do that thing. We have the freedom to decide that kind of last minute and not, not need three or four months in advance to prepare for it. The other area that we see this is in our work from home schedule. So if we're disciplined and we wake up, you know, early in the morning, get after our workout and like get started working when we need to, then in the afternoon, you know, we've, we've had a full day's work by four or four 30. And um, if something comes up in the afternoon, that's really fun and we want to go do or whatever, we have the freedom to go do that. Whereas if we're not disciplined and we sleep in later and we don't get started working until later, then we're sitting behind our computers until, you know, maybe even 10 o'clock at night, because that's that's the like, you know, it's the the pro and the con of working from home and working for yourself is that you get to make your own schedule. So how disciplined are you going to be? And that determines how much freedom and flexibility you're going to have to enjoy things that come up kind of spur of the moment. Yeah. Yeah. And to that point, you know, I think about when we're not disciplined and we do have a really off day, uh, really, you know, we're get up late, whatever, we're behind on our work. I'm not feeling good about it. When we just decide to say, eh, forget it, and we go have fun anyways. We don't enjoy it. I don't even enjoy it. No, I know. I don't even enjoy it. And and it it's really like just another reminder of like when we're disciplined and we do what we need to do, oh my gosh, it, it's so much more freeing. So much more freeing. It's like um, Tim Urban's procrastination. Yes, the procrastination. Playground. Uh, no, he, he has the distraction monkey. Oh, what does he call it? Um, the instant gratification monkey. Yeah, the instant gratification monkey. But then he also has, hang on, I want to find it because it made me laugh when I saw it. Oh, he calls it the dark playground. The dark playground. Yeah. Yes. And of course, the the other place that this comes up, like I alluded to, is with budgeting. You know, there's there's a lot of people that either email us or, or even like in real life and people we've met uh, or in YouTube comments or whatever who want to make a change. Maybe you want to change careers. Maybe you want to move. Maybe you want to buy a new home. Or maybe you just simply want to buy something and you don't know if it's in your budget or not. When you've budgeted for a while and when you know your numbers, Hannah and I know exactly how much we spend. We know exactly how much it takes to live our life the way we live it. We know exactly where our money's going and we know what's going on. So when we want to make a change, maybe we want to change careers like we've done. Maybe we want to quit jobs. Maybe we want to buy homes. Maybe we want to change you know, cities or whatever. We know the numbers that we have to hit or the numbers that we need to change. And so because we're disciplined with the tracking of our finances, it gives us a lot of freedom to make those decisions in a really confident way. But as always, um, 
you know, there's a balance to everything. And so that's kind of where they end this section of the book, uh, which is the last chapter of the book. So I think it's a good place to kind of wrap up this point. They say, so the balance between discipline and freedom must be found and carefully maintained. In that lies the dichotomy. Disciplined, strict order and regimen and control might appear to be the opposite of total freedom, the power to act, speak, or think without any restrictions. But, in fact, discipline is the pathway to freedom. And I uh, I couldn't agree more. Okay, so before we wrap up this episode and uh, do the summary, in addition to me liking Jocko and Leif, what else are we liking? We are liking Hugh Jackman. Hugh Jackman. Oh, my gosh. So not only has the man adopted children, but he also has French bulldogs. He does. I mean, and you just listen to him. he got that accent. He's just such a nice person. He's a nice dude. And I love, like, the way he talks about his wife, Deb. They're just cool. Yeah. They're just a cool couple. They read to each other each morning. They do. And the reason why I know that is because Hugh Jackman was on Tim Ferriss's podcast, and it's excellent. It's excellent. Yeah. So it was episode number 444. It's so good. I mean, I literally, it's out, I don't even know. It's easily one of the best podcast episodes I've heard, maybe ever. I, like, it's uh, every, they talk about so much and they cover all these different aspects of Hugh's life, but it's so applicable, just little bitty nuggets here and there. And then he, he I don't know, he just, he makes me want to be a nicer guy. I just want to be Hugh Jackman's friend. I know. Yeah. I would agree with that. So. So, yeah. So, check it out. Hugh Jackman, stuff we like. All right. So, now that I've oozed about Hugh Jackman on Tim Ferriss's podcast, do you want to tie an actual bow on the entire episode? Actual bow. I tied a mini bow, but now we need the full bow. Yeah. So, check it out. Seriously, one of my favorite books, um, Extreme Ownership, Jocko Willink, Leif Babin. (laughs) I feel like Leif is going to be very mad if he ever listens to this. Nah, he'd laugh. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, so the, the five, I mean, like I said, there's 12 principles that they lay out. The five uh, of our favorites that we laid out today were extreme ownership, owning everything in your environment, and uh, taking that attitude. Uh, keeping things really simple, not overcomplicating stuff. Third was to prioritize and execute. Fourth was decisiveness amid uncertainty and the importance of you know, at some point, you just got to make a decision. And then the last one is discipline equals freedom. So, you know, get after it with making a budget, get after it with your finances, get disciplined with your money. When you do that, it's going to give you a ton of freedom in a lot of other areas. Complete side note, but you know how when you like listen to your own voice and it like makes you cringe? I wonder if Leif Babin is the one person that that's not true for. Him and Morgan Freeman, maybe. Morgan Freeman, yeah. Those two guys. Yeah. Yeah. When we interview them, we'll ask. We'll ask. All right. As always, guys, thank you so much for listening, and uh, we'll see you next time.